Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll cover the Bachman book, The Running Man, chapters 100 to 71. Let's start the show! In the year 2025, Ben Richards is unemployed, his wife is turning tricks to earn money, and his young daughter is ill. Desperate to care for his family, Richards heads to the network with the hope of being selected for one of the many game shows broadcast on the Free V. After going through rigorous physical and mental testing, Richards is selected by producer Dan Killian to appear on the flagship show The Running Man, where he'll earn $100 for every hour he stays alive while being tracked by hunters who are authorized to kill him. If he survives 30 days, he'll get $1 billion. Richard travels to New York City and then Boston without much problem, but starts to notice some strange men outside the YMCA where he is hiding out. Thrilling stuff, Jay. Yeah, this book is so much fun. It is a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah. I haven't read it for years and years and years and years. I've seen the movie multiple times in the intervening uh, time, but the book itself, I don't think I've read since the late 80s, probably. Yeah, I'd say I probably last read this and only read it uh, that one time back in the early to mid 90s. Yeah. And that was after I'd seen the movie at least once. You don't have to say at least once. We all know that multiple viewings of The Running Man are needed. <laughs> yeah. To get all the subtleties. It's like Inception. It rewards additional views. Absolutely. So this is one of the last Bachman books. It was written, according to Stephen King, in about three weeks in 1981. This is one of his uh, <laughs> ones that he just busted through. I think he usually writes like 2,000 words a day, and that gets him on like a four to six month time to turn around a book. And this one, he three weeks done. It was published in 1982 as a paperback original, and then in the Bachman books in 1985. It's unusual because this is a step outside of King's usual writing style and genre. This isn't a, a horror novel at all. You and I have talked about how King doesn't see himself as a genre novelist. He has been sort of pigeonholed by everybody else. Yep. He just writes what he feels like writing and tells the stories he wants to tell. And that's why so many of his stories are blends of genres. But this one is definitely outside of the space where he tends to play. And it is also singularly like one genre. This doesn't kind of meld things together the way like say the gunslinger does. No. Or most of the Dark Tower books. It's still a nonstop thrill ride. It's it has like this forward momentum. It's like an engine that just keeps going. It's great. Yeah. It, it helps a lot with the fact that the chapters are short and propulsive, so mm -hmm. you're never more than three or four pages, it seems, from the next chapter, and that the chapters count down, so you even feel that more so, you know, 100, 99, 98, it's all there to keep you reading. Yeah, and initially, I kind of categorized this as science fiction, and I've read other people have categorized it that way, but I think it's more accurate to say this is speculative fiction. 
in my mind, science fiction has to start with false science thing. And then the rest of the story is the ripple effect out from there. Right. Like in The Expanse, somebody invented this super fast drive to travel through space at near the speed of light or something like that. That changes all of human society and how far they can uh, explore space around them. Yep. From there, all of the rest of the story is just ripple effect. So here, we don't really have that. It's just a speculation on what society could be like if it just continues on the current trend that King was observing when he wrote this book. What is, what's life going to be like in 30 years, 40 years, 50 years? It's going to suck. And let's explore that and yep. have some fun doing it. Yep. So we'll talk about what those speculative things are that he saw in our, in our next section. But yeah, I, I would say that as well. Speculative fiction more than science fiction. Um, a little bit of dystopian fiction on top of this. And that brings me to how this seems to be King taking bits and pieces of other famous writers and their speculative fictions or science fiction. So you get a lot of 1984 with these ubiquitous televisions everywhere. Mm -hmm. A little bit of a change from, from that society, but the fact that there's this whole class structure built in, which is also uh, apparent in 1984. We get the view from Winston Smith, who is not in the lower class, but he's not in the ruling class either. He's sort of in that mid-government worker class. Here we get the view from the other side around, where Ben Richards is in the underclass looking up at, at, at that those folks. And then, you know, some Fahrenheit 451 pieces with the way the society's set up. What else did you notice, Jay? Specifically for four, Fahrenheit 451, the freebie. The, mm. This this television that you almost are forced to watch in Fahrenheit 451, you do. You have to. Like, there's a minimum requirement of watching TV every day, and if you don't, you get fined, arrested, etc. Yep. So here we're we're like almost in that territory. What I kept seeing in King's homage to other influential writers was Philip K. Dick, like all day long in this book. So many of Philip K. Dick's stories, you know, just the way he paints the world for you, the in terms of how people talk to each other, how people get around, how people just move through the world, how people dress, ridiculous or not, the nearly naked female fashion mm -hmm. in this story is very much Philip K. Dick, yeah. where women wear basically spray paint and, and that's all, and, right. and shoes, maybe, I don't know. It's crazy, it's silly, but it's similar. And yep. uh, it, it made me feel like I was reading another Philip K. Dick story. It's a fun little book. And one of the things that I really like about it, and I've mentioned before how much I'm a fan of game shows, is how it nails the game show yeah. sort of bullseye of, of what game shows could become. So he's writing this in the early 80s. And, you know, we had password and price is right and wheel of fortune and jeopardy but this really captures like what our game shows are like now with survivor and naked and afraid and the amazing race mm -hmm. it's very much a this is where our game shows could go and compared to the long walk which is also supposedly a game of some sort and king sort of shoehorns in 
the epigraphs at the beginning of the chapter that are around game shows, it just works so much better here because these are actual game shows and it actually is a game show and you see a society in which these game shows would happen because there is this freebie because of the way that the masses are kept down and that they're engaged by the opportunity to win free money, both as contestants and as observers who can turn people in, in, in the case of the running man. And it just nails it. And I, and I love that aspect of it because King just seems so prescient here. Yeah. I think that's one of my favorite things about the casting of the, the movie adaptation is yes. having Richard Dawson as Killian. Brilliant. It's just a brilliant casting. And we'll get into that uh, whenever we get around to covering that episode, which might be a bonus episode in some future. Very nice. Any opportunity to talk about Richard Dawson is time well spent. Absolutely. I think one thing that King didn't get right when thinking about game shows of the future is the reason that people go on game shows. Mm. So in the Running Man book, it's very clear that Ben Richards has no job. He used to work for a factory where people were getting irradiated because it was the best job they could get. And now he no longer has a job and his wife's become a prostitute part-time and they have no money to get even the simplest penicillin for his daughter. And so he has this great need to get money, right? Like that's what he wants. I just want enough money to take care of my family. Yep. And the game shows that we have nowadays, while there is a money component to it, you get the sense that people go on game shows today in the in the 2020s because they want to be famous. Not so much because of the money. The money might be a byproduct of that when they start selling ads on Instagram and become Instagram influencers. But really mm -hmm. what they want is their 15 minutes of fame that they can hopefully parlay into 30 minutes of fame, whether that be on The Bachelor or The Amazing Race or or Survivor or any of these shows. People are willing to do the things that people are doing on this show for hundreds of dollars and the possibility of willing billions of dollars. People are willing to degrade themselves on TV nowadays just so they can have their name set on TV. Yeah, I mean, the psychology of the the motivations of fame versus money, they're so intertwined and overlap. Because like, let's say you're a contestant on some cooking competition show, and you become the top chef. And now you're super famous. But what does that fame parlay into? More success for your restaurants, the ability to open more restaurants. And that parlays into more money. So it's like fame leads to money, money leads to fame, etc. It, it all kind of feeds on itself. But I agree with you that King's motivation is just about money. This is purely transactional. No one really cares about being known. No. They just need income. So that's one place where he maybe wasn't as prescient as he could have been, but he gets so much else right. He basically envisioned what our reality TV is today almost to a T. Yeah. Even the level of cruelty and and small-mindedness that goes with a lot of these shows. Yep. Because that's what people tune in for. They don't watch Survivor because they want to see who wins. They want to watch people bicker and fight with each other. And that that's all well and good, but King that's not what King's going for here. Right. I get the sense of that with this with all these other game shows. We're going to talk about some of the ones that they have on there. It's that these game shows are really just there to to keep people tuned in, not to, I don't know, maybe I'm I'm being too highfalutin to think like, oh, game shows could educate people like like Jeopardy. 
you weren't watching to see if Jeff Foxworthy would die of a heart attack and you eventually just gave up. Yeah. And I guess this ties into King's class critique, right? Yeah, that that's really his target. Yeah, it's a huge part of this novel, just like the difference in the society between the haves and the have-nots. There's those that are ultra poor, like Ben Richards. There's that middle brow audience who are engaged in watching the game shows and they live in the nicer parts of the city and they have money, but they're still part and parcel and are being used mm-hmm. by the ultra rich, which is the network, right? Like they just see them as the the dumb rubes who will watch these TV shows and, and call in when they see somebody on the street. But uh, it's really the society of three tiers. Yeah. And it's a lot like how ancient Rome is, is sort of depicted today where you know, like the the lowest tiers were the people who ended up bloodying each other in the arenas and the gladiatorial games, and the the aristocrats arranged the gladiatorial games to entertain the masses to keep yeah. them from realizing how bad off their lives were and rebelling against the the you know the upper class. So this feels like a reinterpretation of the those gladiatorial games. It's like, yeah, come take a risk, take a shot. But there's a big reward if you you can make it through. I mean, the joke's on them, though, that no one ever makes it through these things. Right, no. And in fact, there's no expectation that they will. Like, Richards doesn't think he's going to make it, right? He's just yeah. like, I hope I get enough, or my wife can buy penicillin for my daughter when I inevitably die. But we're we're given the sense that Richards is kind of unique in this book. Not only in his politics, but in his, uh, I guess, his fortitude, his intelligence. He's he's a little bit more self-aware and introspective than the average character in this story. The other contestants on the other shows, they just seem like, yeah, I'm going to try that treadmill for bucks thing. And they end up dying on the treadmill. And that that's it. But they don't necessarily go in there thinking, I can beat this game, right? Right. Or maybe they do go in there thinking, I can beat this game, and realize that there is no beating it. Just like all the boys in The Long Walk, right? Yeah. They all thought they could, and then when it, the reality hit them, like, oh no, we're all going to lose but one of us, and even that one person is probably not going to be better off because of this. Exactly. You mentioned how Richards is a little different, and Dan Killian, who's the producer of the show, not the not the host like he is in the movie, but the, the producer of the show... I think it's because of that that he seems to take a liking to Richards. Hmm. I, I don't think that he is the type of person who's giving everybody hints on how to potentially win or survive or having in-depth discussions about his character. Um, I would imagine most producers like Killian would be like, okay, you're next, you're next. But he sees something different in him like, oh, you might be one of us. You're still going to be on the show and you're going to die, but hey, you get it. We're not pulling the wool over your eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not a rube like the rest of these folks. Uh, and that's what he says, like, hey, they all hate your guts, and I know you hate them, right? <laughs> the feeling's mutual. That's how the classes work, exactly. Yeah, each class is ready to consume the one below it. And that puts Richards and his at the lowest class, he's ready to be chewed up and spit out by everybody else. There is nobody below him to chew up and spit out. And he's keenly aware of that. Yep. He hates everybody else as much as they seem to hate him. 
So let's talk about Ben Richards, the character. If you've only experienced the running man through the movie, you will realize that Ben Richards in the book is not anywhere near uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger. He's described as being 28 years old, six foot two and 165 pounds. So he's basically a a waif, right? Like he weighs yeah. next to nothing because he's undernourished. And I think he's pre-tubicular. Killian says to Richards, you are regarded as anti-authoritarian and anti-social. You are a deviant who has been intelligent enough to stay out of prison in serious trouble with the government, and you're not hooked on anything. Later on, Richard says about himself what he's filming himself. He says, he never would have believed he possessed any sort of creative humor. The self-image he'd always held was that of a rather dour man with little or no humor in his outlook. The prospect of his approaching death had uncovered a solitary comedian hiding inside. And while the Richards in the Running Man is very funny. He's funny uh, even before he's on the face of death. So not at all what you would picture in in Arnold. And I think also in the movie, Arnold Ben Richards is a ex-military guy who framed for a crime he didn't commit. And, and this Richard is nothing like that. Uh, as we said, Richards is ultra poor. He's angry and and he wants to do something, but he doesn't know how to do it. At the point that the story starts, Richards is probably motivated almost entirely by rage. Mm. It's due to the frustration of not being able to provide for his family. It's due to the acute nature of his daughter's illness and how relatively minor of a thing it is, but even even as simple as something that just needs relatively inexpensive medicine, he can't even get that. Yep. So he's ready to just burn the world down because he realizes that it's not just get some money, get some medicine, get his daughter better, and then things will be okay. He's thinking a few steps beyond that. Even if he were to achieve that, his life would still be awful. And there doesn't seem to be any way for it to ever be better. So that's why he's like, you know what? Screw it. Right. I'm just going to go on the network and make some money. I'm going to throw myself into that meat grinder because that's what I know it is. But in the process, some money will come out of it and at least that will help. And in the process, who knows what damage I can do while I'm going down. (laughs) Right. That makes him a really interesting character. He is like the quintessential nothing to lose character. Plus, given the extra angles of his keen intelligence and judge of human character and uh, things like that, he's pretty resourceful, even for someone who isn't like a a trained soldier or or anything like that. He's good at thinking on his feet. Yep. And it serves him well, at least this so far in the story. Right. I will say that one of the things that maybe necessarily wasn't my favorite part of this story, at least at the beginning part, is we spend a lot of time on Richard's trying out for the game show. It takes up the bulk of this first third of the novel, you know, him deciding, mm-hmm. I'm going to go do a game show. You don't get to choose which one. You just sort of go through this testing. And we get to see in depth all of the testing that he gets to go through. Yeah. He goes to this floor and gets tested here. And then he changes his clothes here. And then he goes and has a meal here. And now he goes to this floor. And then they're slowly culling people as he goes further and further up this building. And it's just like, okay, when we finally get to the end, Killian sort of explains, like, here's the type of character you are, Richards. And this is another case where King has both 
told us and shown us, and we probably only needed one or the other, but we didn't need both. Mm. And he spends a little bit of time on it. It definitely picked up towards the end as we started getting into him actually playing the game. But there's a lot of chapters where we're going through this whole what's happening at the network and how do you try out for these shows? I agree with everything you just said, but there is one kernel of in there that I really appreciated the story for, and that is the symbolism of Richard's ascent through the network building. Yes. He goes into the ground floor and he is, he's as low as he gets because he's part of this lowest rung of the ladder of society. And then because he is physically more fit, mentally more, you know, acute than, or mentally more capable than his neighbor, then he gets to go to the next floor. And those things continue to be true. So next floor, next floor, next floor, till eventually he reaches the highest floor he can go. Yep. And then he is ejected and dropped all the way back to the bottom, right? But we know that that's not the top floor of the building. There's still higher to go. And that's where like the preparation for the show brings him within like a breath of <laughs> the top rung of society. And then he is immediately ejected. So there's this wonderful thing of him climbing a ladder like like he's literally ascending and and he gets almost to the top and then drops the the bottom falls out and then he has to survive he even asked killian at one point like how do i get up there mm -hmm. and killian's like you'll never be up there yeah don't worry about it it doesn't matter you'll never you'll never see that this is as far as you go kid yep all right so this book came out in 1982 jay mm -hmm. i believe 1982 is when the gunslinger came out is that a fact? It is a fact. So there must be thousands of Dark Tower thinnies. He's thinking about these things simultaneously, King is, right? Yes. I managed to find a, a couple of thinnies. How about you? Did you find any? I found one. Lay it on me. All right. My thinny is that Richards lives in a made-up city called Harding. I'm not sure what it's supposed to represent. We know it's in the Midwest somewhere, so possibly Chicago or Detroit, I'm thinking. And he lives in an area of town called Co-op City. And as we know, Co-op City is in the Bronx in our world, but in the drawing of the three, we learn that Eddie Dean is from Co-op City in Brooklyn. In, in his earth. And so that just made me think that there are other worlds than these, and they all seem to have a co-op city. I'll allow it. I like it. What do you got? The first one that I noticed was that the general pejorative of choice in this story is the word maggot. Mm. People say things to each other like, get stuffed maggot, and things like that. And maggot it's used in the same way in the Dark Tower, especially like when Court is disciplining Roland or Roland is disciplining his apprentice gunslingers. And it just seems like that's like the this generic out-of-time insult that people in Roland's world, in Gilead, and in this story, the running man seem to use. So Maggot it is. I like it. What else? At one point. When he's on the run, Richards checks into a YMCA. When he checks in, he pays $15.50 for the room, 
and he gets room 512. And if you add the digits of the cost in the room number together, guess what it adds up to? Uh, I think I know. Is it 19, Jay? It's 19, Sean. You're going to drive yourself crazy adding up all these numbers. <laughs> and I've got one more for you. Okay. When Richard is getting his fake ID, the old man who's making his fake ID for him says something to him offhand. He's like quoting a, he's quoting a movie or a, or a book or something. And he says, remember, you have the power to cloud men's minds. And what he's referencing is the shadow, mm-hmm. who is a superhero who could cloud men's minds to make himself invisible, or as some might say, dim, kind of like a certain dude named Flag. Oh, yeah, that one's a little bit of a stretch, but... What are you talking about? That's, that's like, that's an awesome thingy. It is good. It is good. And anytime you can reference the shadow is, is fantastic. I like that character that he meets to get the uh, fake ID from. Yeah, me too. Because he knows about uh, Mick Jagger. Who, who was in the Beatles, right? Who, who Richard's like, yeah, I know that person. He was in the Beatles. <laughs> and he's humming Betty Davis eyes to himself as well. All right, we'll see if there's more Dark Tower thinnies as the book continues. But right now, let's move on to yucking it up. Blah. So we said that King is in a different type of story than usual, more speculative fiction than horror. So I didn't quite find so much yucking it up moments as we might have in some of his other books. Richard gets himself into a lot of disgusting situations because he's been told by Killian to stay with your type of people. And Richards takes that to mean like, I should stay in the poor parts of town where I can. Yeah. And so that ends him up in a place like the YMCA with its common bathroom that is the essence of urine, shit, puke, and disinfectant mingled. Yuck. Yeah. My yucking it up is along the same lines. There's a moment when Richard is kind of taking stock in his environment. And the line is, In the day, it is a deserted gray silence which contains no movement but the cats and the rats and fat white maggots trundling across the garbage. Ugh. Yeah. When I read that line and pictured a day that was so quiet that I could hear the maggots rolling around on top of garbage, I almost yucked it right up right then. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't want to think about that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sorry for the delayed uh, trigger warning there, listeners. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons, as always, for supporting the show and getting access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episodes. We've been covering a lot of short stories from Night Shift recently, and soon we'll be covering the Running Man movie, as Jay alluded to earlier. So visit patreon.com slash two guys dark tower to learn more yeah and we'd like to thank our newest patron tiffany s who recently joined at the gunslinger level so thank you tiffany that is fantastic thanks again tiffany all right i think it's that time of the show where we get into some fun stuff let's do it i've hinted at the other game shows besides the running man that are on the network we've got such winners as treadmill to bucks fun guns Dig Your Grave, How Hot Can You Take It, Swim the Crocodiles, Run for Your Guns. I don't think this is a game show as much as an ongoing sport, but there's also Kill Ball. (laughs) I think out of all of those, 
It sounds like Dig Your Grave might be the worst. Like, I'm not sure what the game is there. <laughs> yeah, it's like you're definitely going to die at the end of that, right? Like the other one, Fun Guns, like maybe that sounds like it's all right. But Dig Your Grave, like I don't know what exactly the game is. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Swim the Crocodiles, you might get out of that with like a missing limb or something. But Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dig Your Grave. They might need to consult with the branding team on that one. We got to workshop this one a little bit more. (laughs) I found yet another old dog ear in this book, and it's big clouds condense around small particles. A line that I liked many years ago when I I read the book. And uh, while I'm on the subject of uh, nice writing, there's another line I thought was really cool. It looked like the skeleton of a murdered idea. That is a neat little line. I like it. Yeah. I don't know how to categorize this, but I was entertained by it, so I threw it into fun stuff. That it seems that in the future hellscape that is Ben Richards' life, the word Irish is slang for explosive. And it was in the line, what are you, afraid someone might tape a stick of Irish to your ignition some night? I have to assume that that has something to do with the IRA and terrorist bombings and all that stuff that was going on around the same time that King was thinking of and writing this book. It was at its peak, I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I I thought that that was maybe just a piece of slang that I hadn't heard because it immediately made sense and I got yeah, the reference. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. I wonder how often that's used because I'd never heard it before. When I did a little Google search, like it only comes up in this book as far as I can tell. I got a lot of uh, shillelaghs and walking sticks from the Irish, but no explosive stick of Irish. There's so. a drink the, called the Irish car bomb. Yes, there is. I think you put like a flaming shot in it, right? I guess, or maybe you just slap a stick of Irish to the glass and yeah. see what happens. I, I'm going to put that in uh, my everyday conversation for sure. So any other fun stuff, Sean? All right. My last one is that we are trying to figure out uh, where Harding was. It's really the only fake city that King uses uh, so far. He tries to, I think when the producers of the show are ginning up interest in the in the show, they say, where will Richards appear next? Will it be New York? Boise, Albuquerque, Columbus. And of course, Jay and I noticed the Columbus right away because we both started the show in Columbus. Neither one of us lived there now, but we started it in Columbus. But even of more interest to Jay and I is Albuquerque because of Weird Al. So if you've got nine minutes, please listen to Albuquerque by Weird Al. It's well worth your time. Yeah, you'll find out whether or not he likes sauerkraut. All right, well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode. Join us as we continue our coverage of The Running Man with chapters 70 to 43. For Jay Russo, I'm Sean McGurr. Thanks for listening. 
Give that another go. And I'm Sean McGurr. That's your cue. Got it. Line. And I'm Sean McGurr. In the year 2025, Ben Richards is... Yeah.